This morning, we continue our sermon series through the book of Luke, and we'll be looking in particular at Luke chapter 3, the verses 1 to 20. Luke chapter 3, the verses 1 to 20, which you'll be able to find on page 1181 of your pew Bible. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria, and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. While Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. Now as the people were in expectation, and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations, he preached to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this, above all, that he shut John up, in prison. So far, the Word of God. Today, we'll be looking in particular at verse 8, Luke 3, verse 8a. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, I read our passage today And there is 
one figure in particular in this passage which breaks my heart. Here you see men who are coming to John, who listen to him, who believe, and who ask how they might change. Left, right, and center people are being baptized. They hear. They sympathize. The Lord seizes their hearts and convicts. And then, then you see Herod. We read in Mark 6, verse 20, we read in our passage here as well, that Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man. Pardon me, I think that should be... No, that's right. We, Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things, and heard him gladly. Herod was a man who was frightened of John. He wasn't frightened of him because of the fact that he was an influential and persuasive preacher, although he was. He was frightened because John was a just and holy man. John, for Herod, was a man to listen to, whose preaching convicted him of his sin and told him that he was on the highway to hell. He wasn't completely convinced, but John's preaching was convicting enough to perplex him and to cause him to ask himself the terrifying question, am I, am I on the highway to hell? You hear John preaching in Luke 3 concerning the coming of Christ. His winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor, gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And you know that this did not fall on deaf ears. Now knowing who this man Herod is, you in the pew today might think, well, of course he's in danger of hell. I mean, look at who he is. Look at where he ended up. Look at what he did. He wasn't the Herod that had killed the babies in Bethlehem. That was his father. But that didn't take away from his wickedness. Among other things, he divorced his first wife, Phasaelus, because he preferred Herodias, who had divorced her own husband. Her ex-husband was her uncle. Her new husband was her ex-husband's half-brother. It was a royal mess. Indeed, this was a wicked man. But even he, even he had the opportunity to repent. Herod feared John. He feared of the message John was bringing. But when it came to Herodias, he could not accept what was said. We read in our passage, with many other exhortations, John preached to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this, above all, that he shut John up in prison. Herod was a man who was on the doorstep of the kingdom of heaven. He heard the proclamation of the gospel. It struck fear in his heart. 
And yet, when push came to shove, he could not get over the fear of being publicly rebuked. He, how could he stay in control if he didn't respond to what this man was preaching and imprison him? He could not get over his fear of Herodias, whom he took as his wife, if he didn't listen to her wishes and she hated John. She might leave him. Sure, his relationship with her was sinful, but his fear of losing it was greater. He let his fear dominate him. And this is sad. It's sad because it's a reflection of so many in our world today. They are on the doorstep of the kingdom of heaven. They hear the gospel. The warning of the gospel even strikes fear into their heart. They see the people who share the gospel with them and the men who preach the gospel to them as just and holy people. They might even go out of their way to protect them. We read that for a while, Herod did that. But their fear of the loss of the things that they treasure in this life overwhelms their fear of God. They stand on the doorstep of the kingdom of heaven, but they do not repent. They do not enter in. Beloved, don't find yourself in this position. Don't live a life of fear without repentance. Jesus says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? This was a sad situation which Herod faced. And that's the tragedy of those who see their need but cannot give up their personal gods. The gods that they have raised up in their lives. They refuse to give up their desires and they reject having the Lord as God over all their lives. To those, John cries out to them, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Look to your God and He will provide you with what you need. He will help you grow, flourish, bear fruit worthy of repentance. The second group that we're introduced to in our passage is the self-satisfied people. Those who are happy with the way they are. They're feeling pretty spiritual and fairly faithful. They come to John the Baptist and they see him preaching about things that they agree with intellectually. The Pharisees were among those who came down to the side of the river to listen to this man preach. This man, John the Baptist, proclaim the kingdom, proclaim a message of repentance. The Pharisees would have been quite appreciative of someone who is preaching repentance. They might even go down to the water themselves to show this thing that I agree with intellectually. Look, everyone. I'm taking part in it too. So that I'm not seen as any different from you. Look at me. 
This is one more holy exercise for me. I'm taking all the right steps. But they themselves, as we learn later from Jesus, they themselves didn't truly repent. They were seen as a holy people. They saw themselves as holy people. And sadly, in many cases, they saw themselves as holier and better than those who were around them. Jesus demonstrates this attitude in his parable on the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, like extortioners, like thieves, and like this here tax collector. For I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I possess. This is the kind of man that we might make a deacon in the church if we didn't know that was his prayer, if we didn't see inside his heart. Everything on the outside seemed good. But the Lord knows the heart. And when the tax collector came before God and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Then Jesus said, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, while the Pharisees lived holy lives, this description of them by Jesus, while a stereotype was sadly true for many of them. They were so focused on outward holiness that their whole focus became, how does my life look to others? What are the optics of my life? And this was at the cost of the fruit of repentance. They saw themselves as holier than other men rather than caught with them in a common condition and needing a Savior just as much as the next guy. They missed being broken down by their own sin and blown away by the amazing grace of a forgiving God. Beloved, have you experienced this in your life? The fruit of regeneration. The fruit of repentance and conversion. It's sad, but in our day, there are many people who have false conversions. They think that they're in the clear, that they're righteous, but their hearts don't show it. They see themselves as holier than those around them. They see themselves as pretty good people, not people who are in need of a savior. If they do sin, they brush it under the rug as not a big deal. It's not a salvation issue. It's not a reason for them to humble themselves before God. Alcohol, Anger control issues, adultery, theft, porn, slander, substance abuse. Everyone struggles with something. This is just my issue. But it's not a reason for me to humble myself before my God. It's not a reason for me to break down before my God because I'm a holy man. I do the right things. I take all the right steps. I follow all of the Christian ceremonies. But because they do not understand and do not truly submit their lives to God's will, they demonstrate that they have not truly believed in the Lord Jesus Christ for their complete salvation. 
And one symptom of that is living in a state of denial. If we deny that we have a problem, not only that we have sin in our lives, but that this is something that we need to put to death. Then, as we read in 1 John 1 verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in it. You see, many people will accept the fact intellectually that they sin. They'll accept it intellectually. They'll know sin. But for them, it's not truly sin. To them, it's just a little something that needs to be changed when they get around to it or that other people should be willing to put up with because it's just a part of my character. It's not something that needs to be put to death. Think about this for yourselves. Is your sin truly sin to you? Is your sin something that needs to be put to death? How do you see your coming to Jesus? Did you come to Jesus to get saved? Or did you just want your ticket punched for heaven? Are you coming to Jesus as Lord of your life? Do you find your identity in Christ? Sin is something that is so abhorrent to a holy God that we should recoil at the thought of it. Sin is something that should break our hearts. The result of discovering sin in our lives, as our catechism says, is that we ought to grieve with a heartfelt sorrow that we have offended God by our sin. More and more to hate it and to flee from it. But how do we go about doing this in a day and age in which there's no recognition of total depravity? A day and age in which we're conditioned by society to think that everything is acceptable and okay as long as it's within the limits of tolerance. Brothers and sisters, we need to pray for the power of the Holy Spirit. Each and every one of us needs to pray, Lord, I have nothing to give you but my sin. Open my eyes to that sin. Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Work in me that I may bear fruit worthy of repentance. Why? Because it's the Lord who does open our eyes. That's one of the steps of invincible grace. He makes us aware of our totally depraved state and our desperate need for His grace. Pray that the Lord would open your eyes and that the Spirit might convict you of sin and create in you a new heart that wants to change. Psalm 51. Sit down today when you go home and reflect. Meditate. Pray. Reveal to me. Lord, reveal to me. In which areas of my life do I need to transform? But having done that, don't stop there. Don't just simply sit in fear. But repent of your sin. You can't find joy in Christ if you don't repent. You might feel bad about it, but you won't change. You'll find still more joy in your sins than in turning to Christ. Repent of your sins. 
Grieve the fact that it grieves God and flee to Christ. Work to heed the words that are spoken to you. Pray that God would create in you a clean heart that you may be able to do this and you'll begin to see change. By the power of the Spirit on whom you call, you'll begin to see change. But not only will you begin to see change, you'll begin to see a joy that grows in your heart. A joy to follow God's commands because you see them as just, righteous, holy, and true. Because you love them. And the joy of the Lord becomes your strength. This change that we speak about is something which we see in our passage today. The Heidelberg Catechism says, what's the true repentance and conversion of man? It's the dying of the old nature and the coming to life of the new. The question which naturally follows is, what is the dying of the old nature? It's to grieve with a heartfelt sorrow that I have offended God by my sin, and more and more to hate it and flee from it. That's what the people, the tax collectors and the soldiers in our passage had come to realize. They had been convicted by the Holy Spirit. They grieved that they had offended God by their sin, and immediately their question was, what shall we do then? Do you ever think when you do something against someone in your life, oh, she'll get over it, he'll get over it, when you feel a little bit guilty about the fact that you've, you've snapped at your wife, that you've disrespected your husband, that you haven't honored your parents? It's a little bit different if you're brought to think, oh, I've offended God by that sin, isn't it? Now, I I choose relatively simple things, not to pick on husbands, wives, or or kids, but to give you a bit of a picture of the all-encompassing nature of our sanctification. As the Holy Spirit confronts us with our sin in our lives, it should cause us to recognize, I've offended God by that sin, and cause us to respond with, what shall we do then? Every aspect of our lives should be a chance to pause, to reflect, to submit it to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, and to grow in the Spirit. People should be able to walk into our homes. They should be able to walk into Christian businesses and Christian workplaces and not be able to walk out of there without knowing that you're a Christian. They should be like, those people are strange. I asked them how they got guys to work, who work so hard, and they told me, oh, these guys, they work hard because they're working for the Lord and not for man. They should recognize, yeah, that's a business owned by a family from the Canadian Reformed Church. They're kind people. They're honest. They're hardworking. You can tell that they're a Christian because they're completely different. They're completely transformed from everyone who's around them. They're bearing this fruit that I don't understand. I want to come to them and ask them how they got to this point. Because being a Christian transforms you. It transforms you in every aspect of your life. But it should be especially notable in those parts of our lives that other people see as well. 
If there's no way for people around you to be able to tell that you're a Christian, if people see no difference between you and the corrupt competition, I'm not saying all competition is corrupt, but you get my point, then John is declaring a proclamation for you to look at yourself, examine the posture of your heart. You can see that in our passage today. Things which were common in their industry, which officially were not completely okay, but which were allowed to let them make ends meet a little more easily, these things were suddenly not acceptable. Tax collectors are told, show your conviction by collecting no more than what's appointed for you. Soldiers are told, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. Have you repented? John says to them. Now show the world what that looks like. If Christ is indeed at work in you, the same Spirit who convicts you will allow you and equip you to make the hard choices, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Choices in which you put to death the old nature. Not because you're changing yourself, Not because you're taking steps X, Y, and Z. But because you submitted to God and by His Spirit you're being transformed inwardly from day to day. Sorrow without change or outward holiness without the heart. These are the shortcomings which John finds in their lives. That's what John the Baptist is teaching them. Can they... Find the courage to submit to the Spirit. Can they find the strength to transform so easily on the words of a preacher who declares it to them? Of themselves, no. But he's not teaching them to transform alone. He's teaching this in a broader context, isn't he? He's preaching as one who prepares the way of the Lord. As we read, he Quoted from the prophet Isaiah here, Isaiah 52, verse 10. He is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough ways smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This prophet who prophesied so long ago was declaring that this is what this man today was doing. He is the forerunner before Jesus Christ himself preaches. And he confesses that. People wonder if he's the Christ. And he declares to them, no. No. John is coming teaching people to fear their sin. John is coming calling people to put to death their sinful natures. He's busy crying out to the people to fill the valleys and bring hills and mountains low to make straight the crooked places and prepare to see their salvation to prepare the way for the one who is coming. He's calling them to recognize their sin, to humble themselves before God. But John himself is not the Christ. Why? Because what John is doing is declaring sin. But Christ is the one who brings salvation. He declares the coming of the kingdom 
But Christ himself will separate the wheat from the chaff. As he declares, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Terrifying imagery, isn't it? And yet it should bring us comfort. Because Jesus is the one who brings salvation. Jesus is the one who doesn't only bring law, doesn't just tell people that they fall short so that they are condemned. He brings freedom. As the same prophet Isaiah declared so long ago, he is the one who will proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound. And more than that, he not only brings salvation, but he brings the Holy Spirit as well. He brings to life that which was dead. He replaces our hearts of stone with a heart of flesh. We spoke of the dying of the old nature, but the dying of the old nature is not alone. It's accompanied with the coming to life of the new that he grants us. So what's that? Our catechism summarizes it well. It's a heartfelt joy in God which we receive through Christ. And a love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. This is the grace which God works in our lives. This is the gift he gives us. This is what the audience of John the Baptist can expect to come in the days ahead. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming. And his kingdom is coming in power. He brings salvation to his people, but more than that, he anoints them with his Holy Spirit and with fire. He anoints you with his Holy Spirit. What courage could we have if we did not have him on our side? But if Christ is for us, if his Holy Spirit is working in us, then who can stand against us? Can death, can plague, can the fire, can the sword, things in the past, things present, things in the future? No. No. Praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we will not stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image until day by day He does shape us. He does work among us and He does transform us. Fix your eyes on Jesus and pray for the power of the Spirit in your life. And He'll grant you a love and delight to live for Him. He'll grant you the fruit that begins to grow in your life, the fruit of repentance. For he, our Lord, is faithful and true. Amen.